Doesn't that look fun? So we would love for you to be part of the Mud Run event. Uh, last time we did this, my wife was the speaker. She had an awesome time, and we would love for any of you mothers and daughters to come out and be a part of it. It really is a can't-miss event. It's part of our desire to partner with parents to raise their kids to know and follow Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is by having events like this that you can show up to and have really important conversations with your son or your daughter or whoever you're investing in. And uh, we want to provide that opportunity and facilitate that for you. So we do a father-son barbecue and flag football event. We do the mud run. We've got lots of other stuff like this planned as well. But this is one of those things where five years from now, your daughter is probably not going to remember the, her homework assignments or some of the sports games that she was involved in. But man, if you mom will show up and get into the mud with her at a mud run, she is going to remember that moment forever. And she won't be able to get that picture out of her mind. And that's what you want. Yeah, so uh, make sure that you sign up and are a part of the Mud Run event. A couple other things I want to make sure I share with you today as well. Uh, the Community Impact Fair happened a little bit ago. I hope you were able to stop by our activity center and see that. If not, all of the ministries are featured on our website if you go to the events page, excuse me, and you can see all of the ministries there that were here this is part of our goal to get out there into our community and reach people with the love and the gospel of Jesus and make a difference. So if you go to efree.org events, you can see a map of all the ministries that were involved there and you can get involved through that. You can also go to efree.org slash make a difference and see lots of different ways that you can get plugged in and serve in our community. We want to do that as a church. The last thing I want to remind you about is our baptism, which is coming up next week. The deadline to sign up for that is going to be tomorrow night. So please make sure if you would like to be baptized that you let us know at efree.org slash baptism. And there's a video that we just put on our website at that same page that you can watch, which will give you a lot more explanation. I'd love for you, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been uh, dunked underwater, I would love for you to go watch that video to see where baptism started and why we do it, because it's really important that you be baptized. Okay, that's it for all the PSA stuff. Hi, welcome. We're glad you're here. Thanks for being here today. My name is Adam. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors, and I'm so excited to get into God's Word together. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open to Matthew 16. We'll be there for a little bit. Then we're going to hop over to the book of Acts. So just so you're prepared for that roadmap. And we're going to be talking about the last section of our Rooted ministry today. Rooted, if you don't know, is this experience that we've been going through as a church. About 150 of you have gone through it now, and we're going to continue offering this. So if you missed out, there will be more chances. I would highly encourage you to go through it. And each week, Rooted is asking a different question. This week, that question is, why is the church important? Why is the church important? Important, And it seems like kind of a self-serving question. We're here in a church, and we're going to answer the question of why is church important? But I think it's a valid question. I think it's one that a lot of people today especially are asking. And if they're asking that question, then there may be a good reason for that. I don't know about you, but there are times where it just feels like, man, church is, is a lot of hassle. It's a lot of trouble, even if it's just kind of showing up there on the weekend. It's like, boy, there's other stuff I'd rather be doing. There's, there's other things that would be fun to do. And of course, there are people who experience all kinds of problems in churches, and many of you have had church baggage, and I know many of your stories at previous churches, maybe some of you, that's why you're here, is because you had baggage at your previous church, and, and now you're here, and you're, you're, you've got that, that you kind of remember your experience. And a lot of people, they go through problems in churches, and then they just say, well, I'm just done with the church. 
I'm going to be over now because church is messy and churches are broken. And, and why would I want to be a part of a church if, if it just seems like these people that are supposed to be united are constantly divided and arguing over things. I was just talking with someone at our community impact fair a little bit ago who goes to a different church and they were describing how absolutely horrible the last two years have been for them at this church and how they've had people quit uh, staff over it and they've had people leave the church and huge division caused because of everything that went down over the last couple of years. And I've experienced, you may think, you know, hey, a pastor, he's going to always promote the church and say it's wonderful, but I've experienced a tremendous amount of difficulty in churches over the years. Um, I mean, I've seen probably the same type of things you've seen. Christians who don't act like Christians. You ever see that? Pastors who don't act like Christians. Um, you, you ever see people who they're one way in church and they're so, so completely different outside of the church, outside of that kind of gathering of people at home and at work. People who do things that you're just shocked. You're like, oh, come on. You're, you're a follower of Jesus. You should not be behaving this way. And yet we see this. And so for many of us, it causes us to just be turned off to church completely. Uh, people who are Christian in name only, they say they're a follower of Jesus. Maybe they show up occasionally to church, but it doesn't look like it's brought about any actual transformation in their lives. Like they live life differently because of that, that aspect of following Jesus and being a part of that body of believers. And so I can see why when Lifeway Research did a survey a couple of years ago, they found that 65% of regular churchgoers said, when I get this right, I can walk with God without other believers. I can walk with God without other believers. You know, that is a growing sentiment among people today. I love Jesus. I'm done with the church. I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with other people that are also following Jesus, at least in not kind of an organized way. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, I'll be at my house on Sunday, and I might turn on a service or something like that. I might, you know, watch something online, maybe, you know, occasionally, but I'm not going to actually be part of any kind of organized group of people because I've just experienced so many problems there, and I'm, just, I'm done with it. I'm over it. That survey of 65% of churchgoers, that was from a couple of years ago. I'm sure that's bigger today. I just know from talking with people and doing research and that kind of stuff that, that there is a huge number of people who are saying, I'm just, I'm over the church. And you know what? Churches in many cases have become so political. They've become so divided. These are people that are supposed to be united in love uh, with the gospel of Jesus being our, our central factor, even if we disagree on other things. And yet all, all sorts of arguments over preference and style and methodology and governance and different decisions and worship and teaching and all these things. I'm not talking false teaching versus good teaching. I'm talking, is it the style of teaching that I like? And all of these things can cause us to just say, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm over it. So here's what I want to do. I want to take us back to where it all started. Back to the beginning of the church. Let's go see what was it like in those first few weeks, those first few months after Jesus came and he died and he came back to life and he stayed here for 40 days and then he took off and he left his apostles in charge and said, I want you guys to go and carry this forward. And they started this thing called the church. And what did that look like? What did they do? And maybe did they know something that we need to get back to? It's called back to the basics after all. And a lot of what we've been talking about is back to the basics for the individual believer. I want to talk about back to the basics for the church. What is the church supposed to be all about? So Matthew chapter 16, if you haven't turned there already, I always want to encourage you to be following along in your own Bible, whether it's a print Bible or digital Bible or whatever it is, be following along in your own Bible. And let's read this together. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man was a phrase that Jesus used to refer to himself. Why Jesus liked to talk in the third person, I do not know. I personally find it annoying when people do that. But the Son of Man was a phrase that Jesus often used to refer to himself. So he's saying, who do people say that I am? And it was an important phrase, and there's some prophecy to it. I won't get into all that right now. But they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So people think you're an important dude. But they don't think you're like the dude. Like they think you're a prophet that maybe has come back to to tell people about God. And that's a good thing. But then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This was a big deal. This This is the most incredible admission. The Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, not just a prophet, the son of the living God. Messiah, that's what Peter says Jesus is. And so Jesus replies to him and says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. So let's not give Peter too much credit. This was God revealing to Peter that this is the Messiah. And Jesus says, you did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now there's disagreement over whether or not Jesus is calling Peter the rock and then saying it's on that rock of Peter that he's gonna build his church or, or the true statement that Jesus is the Messiah. And I'm not gonna get into all that right now. I just wanna ask you two questions, okay? Two questions, and I actually wanna hear your answer to this, okay? So the 9 a.m. crowd, man, I asked the question, it was just crickets, all right? So I wanna hear your answer. That They got there eventually, but you know, I mean, you guys, you guys are gonna do better. The answers are in the text. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, it'll make this a lot easier. Here's question number one. Who is going to build the church? Jesus, good answer. In fact, just as a general rule, if you ever weren't paying attention in church or asked a question, you will get bonus points for Jesus. (laughs) Question number two, whose church is it? Okay, that should be really loud at that point. I've just told you the answer is Jesus. Whose church is it? Who's going to build the church? You know, we do all sorts of gimmicky things in churches to try to build the church, don't we? There are all these conferences I can go to and seminars where it's like 10 ways to build your church and grow and all these different formulas and things that you can do. The Bible tells us that Jesus is going to build his church. That's not to say that we shouldn't be good at what we do. It's not to say we shouldn't be excellent. It's not to say we shouldn't have fun. I just told you about a mud run. We like to have fun. We're all about fun, but fun's not the main thing. If fun takes priority, then all you're going to have are people that are there for the fun and not there for the message about Jesus. Whose church is it? Jesus. It's Jesus' church. And we have a phrase that we use sometimes, and it's, it's just two words. It goes, my church. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I talk about my church. Why? Because it's where I go to church. And you talk about my church. But sometimes we talk about my church in a different way. Like, In my church, I want it to do like this, and I want it to be like that, and I want, it's my church. I want it to meet my preferences. I want to get my way, and I want it to, you know, happen the way I want it to happen. And we forget that it's Jesus' church. If it's Jesus' church and not my church, then maybe some of the things that are going to happen there are things that I don't like. Maybe some of the decisions are made are going to be decisions I don't care for. Maybe some of the style of things that happen are going to be things that I don't really appreciate or agree with. But you know what? It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. And maybe I think if you were to do things a little bit differently and you were to kind of have this sort of event or do this thing over here, then more people would come. And you know, you might be right. But at the end of the day, who's going to build the church? It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus' church, and he is going to build the church, and we have to remember that. So then I want to I go back to the beginning of that early church and go, okay, how did it work? How did church growth look like? How did the life of the church look like? Why was the church important to these people back at the beginning, the foundation of the church? And for that, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. So flip over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and let me give you some context to this so that we can all understand what's going on here. If you get the chance later today and you want to read Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, I'd love for you to do that because it is an amazing story. It's just awesome. So would highly recommend that. But here is the cliff notes. Peter's been preaching in Jerusalem to a big crowd of people who are gathered there. And, and Peter's preaching about Jesus. He's preaching that he died, that he came back to life. He's preaching about the, the forgiveness of sins that is offered and telling people that they need to repent and turn to Jesus. He's telling them about salvation for anyone that believes in Jesus. So it's this incredible message that he is giving. And you need to know that this is just two months after Jesus died and came back to life. Okay, two months later, that's when this is happening. And then Jesus was around for 40 days. This is about a week and a half after that. About a week and a half after Jesus has left his apostles, given his final instructions and left. And now here's Peter. He's preaching about this guy who just left. And you think about it, this is their main leader, the guy that left. You would think that maybe uh, that would cause this movement to just disperse. But no, I mean, I'm sure the Jewish leaders thought, finally, we got him. And Satan thought, yes, he's gone. He's not going to influence these people anymore. And then this happens. So look in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Peter is preaching to the people, and here's what it says. Luke is writing this for us. He says, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of theology baked in there, and we don't have time to get into all of that today. That's not our purpose. But I do want to talk about repentance real quick. Because when he talks about repent from your sins, sometimes I think we get it into our, our minds that we just have to say, I admit I was wrong. You know, I have kids, and those kids do things to each other sometimes that are not very nice on a daily, I mean, hourly basis. And they have to apologize, right? And when they do that, they sometimes will say, I'm sorry. It's like, were you really sorry? I don't think that penetrated the core. That sorry didn't come from the heart. It was a, because I have to say it, I'm sorry. And sometimes I think we think of repentance as just a, a verbal agreement where we just say, yep, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And we agreed to it. But, but repentance is more than that. It's not just intellectual agreement. It's not just verbal agreement. Repentance is a change of direction. Repentance is a turning away from something. So when you repent for something, you're saying, I am not just saying that it's wrong, but I am now turning from it to do something different, to live a different way. And so that's why Peter says here, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. It's a 180 degree turn. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I used to do those things that I know God doesn't want me to do. And now I'm going to live differently. I'm not just going to say it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to live differently. That's what repentance is all about. Okay, so then Peter says in verse 39, this promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. So very inclusive message. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Let me read that again. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. That's an interesting, never mind. <laughs> Strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. How many were added? 
3,000 people were added. Now that is some radical church growth. Just like a week earlier, they were meeting and they were about 120 people in a room. That was the church. And if you had told that group of people, guess what? In less than two weeks time, you're gonna have 30 more people join your church. They'd be like, awesome, 25% growth, that's huge. Any church that's grown by 25% in a matter of a week is like, yes, I'll take it. What if you had told them 300 people were gonna join your church? It's like, our church just tripled, that's awesome. But it wasn't even that, it was 3,000 people. They just bloomed into a mega church overnight. And all of a sudden they've got all these people and they're trying to figure out what do we do and how do we do things. And and so in that context, I want us to think about that because I used to think about the church as if it was this, the early church as if it was the little church. And I grew up in a little church, so that's probably only natural. But I used to think, you know, the the early churches were these little tiny churches that met in houses and that's the whole congregation. It's like, no, that's not it at all. In Jerusalem and Antioch and Crete and Philadelphia and Ephesus, all these places, they were big churches. These were like 1,500 to 3,000 to 4,000 people in some cases. They were big churches. They had to figure out with all those different people and all their different backgrounds, how do we get along with each other? How do we do life together? How do we do ministry? Why is the church important? Why should I be a part of this thing? So I just want to show you what they did. I want to show you what they did. If we, um, if we keep on reading here in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And uh, I'm going to jump ahead for the people who are managing the screen there. I'm going to skip a couple things. Acts chapter 2, verses 42. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Now, if you've got a Bible that you can write in or an app that you can highlight, I want to encourage you to underline or circle or highlight the word devoted. Do something with that word devoted, because that word is a key word. We're going to unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? That was so critical to the early church. The word devoted, we're going to put the definition up there on the screen for you. It's proskartereo is the Greek of this. I'm not very good at pronouncing the Greek, but in case you care, that's what it is. And it means devoted, and it has the idea, no matter which lexicon or dictionary you look at, it has the idea of continual effort. There is a constancy to it of we're consisting in this. And it also carries the idea of there was some sort of struggle involved in making this happen. So in other words, it's not easy. It's continual and it's not easy. Those are the two most important things you need to know about this word for devoted. This is something that took some work. We hit some obstacles along the way. We couldn't just, just roll out of bed and do this. I had to be devoted to do it. It's like if you're climbing up a mountain and you're getting tired and winded and you're like, I'm not sure if I can go on. And then, and then you keep pushing through it because you were devoted. Last year, my wife and I got to take a few days and go out to Arizona without the kids. It's the first time that had happened in many years. And it was awesome. We got an Airbnb and we just went out and hiked a bunch of different mountains. Super fun. We love doing it. Both of us love hiking and being outdoors. And we've done a lot of that in the past. It's harder to do when you've got kids. We've done the whole, you know, on the backpack and all that kind of stuff. But this was just the two of us. And I, some of you know, have had um, some leg issues over the years, some knee issues. I've had six surgeries between these two knees. And uh, I was told, let's see, was it eight years ago that in 10 years I would need a knee replacement in this knee? So, you know, got a couple years to go. We'll see how long we can can make it last. One of the problems with that is I have horrible arthritis in my knees and they get super inflamed and it's very painful, especially if I'm standing for a long time, which is why I chose this for my career. And... (laughs) If I'm 
doing a lot of physical activity, if it's cold outside, if I'm hiking, climbing, all that stuff, it can get to be extremely achy and painful. Um, it can hurt a lot. So as we're hiking up these mountains, my wife keeps turning to me and being, how are you holding up? How are your knees holding up? You know, and I, I feel like I'm, you know, 50 years older or something, but uh, she's like, how, how, you hold, how are you holding up? You know, what are you, what are you, what are you, are you gonna, gonna be okay with those knees there, you know? And there were times where I just had to stop. And I had to sit down like, oh man, it's hurting and kind of let that swelling go down a little bit so that I could keep on going. But I never gave up. I never, and not that it would have been bad to, I'm not trying to glorify never giving up. Sometimes it's wise to when you're doing that kind of a thing. But the point is I was devoted to get to the top of those mountains because once you got up there and you got to see that whole vista, that panorama in front of you, it was all worth it. It was beautiful. Pictures don't do it justice. And so I was devoted. I was not going to stop. Even if I had to rest for a little bit, I'm going to keep going through great difficulty, through great pain, through great inconvenience, through whatever it takes. I'm going to make it to the top of this mountain. And then we're going to enjoy that incredible view. That's what devoted means. It means even if we hit obstacles, even if it's painful, even if it's inconvenient, even if we don't always like it, we're going to continue to press on. We're going to continue to do these things. Now, let's just pause for a moment and take a very raw and honest assessment of what word might describe American Christianity today. Would it be the word devoted? Or would it be the word casual? Or occasional? Or convenient? The church today is in a sad state largely because Believers are not devoted through great difficulty, inconvenience, and pain to press on. Now, what do we need to be devoted to? That's the next question. Let's see what they were devoted to in the next verse. Uh, They were devoted to, let me get to it here, teaching, first of all. Four things they were devoted to, four key things. Now, some scholars think that it was actually two things and the two last things are subpoints to the second thing. It doesn't really matter. There's four distinct things that are mentioned here that they were devoted to, that they would not give up on. And the first one is teaching. Now, the apostles had all learned directly from Jesus. And this was very important to them. They had learned specifically from Jesus. And they were going to pass these things along to other people. So when these people were were gathered to hear the teaching of the apostles, what they were really hearing was the teaching of Jesus passed on through the teaching of the apostles. And they were devoted to it. What does it mean to be devoted to the teaching of the apostles? Well, it probably means that we don't just kind of show up and listen to it and then forget about it. It probably means that we don't just show up to listen to the teaching when we feel like it. It probably means that we're not just sort of out there on our phones doing other stuff while the teaching is happening. No offense to whoever's doing that right now. I'm sure there's one person doing that right now. It probably means that while the teaching is going on, we're not thinking about our grocery list for later that day. I mean, guilty. I'm on stage and I could be guilty of that, right? I've got some stuff I got to pick up for a small group later tonight. And that's not an illustration. That's just true. And I could be thinking about that up here, going, oh, there's all this other stuff, but we're, we got to be devoted to the teaching. Now, you might rightly say, but Adam, you are not an apostle. You don't look like an apostle. You don't sound like an apostle, and you would be right. I am not an apostle, but here's the amazing thing. 
Jesus and the apostles ensured that the apostles' teaching would make its way all the way down through the centuries to where you are sitting today. And they had an incredible method for doing that. Jesus said right before he left, he said, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to do everything I commanded you. And what did he just command them to do? To go and make disciples and teach them to do everything he commanded which means that there is a cyclical approach to this, that every new disciple is supposed to become someone who is passing on the teaching of the apostles, the t- that teaching that came from Jesus. It's not supposed to end with you. You're supposed to learn it and absorb it so that you can then pass it on to someone else. It's part of the mission of the church. It's one of the reasons why our vision statement, which is based primarily on this Acts chapter 2 passage, Acts chapter 2 verse 42, but there's an extra element of it which has to do with developing leaders. And part of the reason for that is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Timothy, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. The whole point of this is not just for us to sit and soak. The point of this is for us to learn and grow so we can pass them on to other people. And one of the responsibilities that Paul gives the leaders of the churches is to say, your job is to equip more people to pass this on. And that is what we are doing today. We are continuing that pattern of passing on the apostles' teaching from person to person. Does that mean everything that's said up here by me or anybody else is perfect? Not at all. But there is apostles' teaching that we are learning from and sharing with you and then you with the help of the Holy Spirit and with your small group and with the Word of God are to then take that and go, okay, what if this is the apostles' teaching that I need to listen to? We're passing that on, but we need to be devoted to it. One of the greatest ways to be devoted to the teaching is to be part of a small group. And I love the, the ones where um, we actually sit and talk about the message. I mean, part of the nice thing is you've probably been a part of small groups that have a lot of homework. Well, if your homework is just watching the message, well, that was an easy one. You just watch the message and now we're gonna go talk about the, the message in our small group. And every week we put together a discussion guide so that you can dig deep that. And I, I know some of you, like, you have serious questions. You'd like to go off on a tangent or you wish we had covered something else in the message time. Well, do that. Do that in your small group. Talk about that there. And you can go deeper. Be devoted to the teaching. The second thing that the believers were devoted to is fellowship. In the Greek, it's koinonia. You've probably heard that phrase before. It refers to a closeness of relationship like a family or a friend would have. When you see a friend or a family member that you haven't seen in a while, what kind of a greeting do you have with that person? Isn't it a hug and and a warmth and a, a welcome and just, it's just, you're excited to see each other. And you might exchange gifts and you talk to each other for a while. And you just want to know what's going on in your life. And you're not just talking about you, but you're asking questions about them. That's the kind of relationship that the early church had with each other. Now, remember, these were people from all sorts of different walks of life, all kinds of different backgrounds that suddenly found themselves as part of one group called the church. And, and as a part of this group of people, they became like a family. And a family has a closeness of relationship and connection with each other that's called koinonia or fellowship. One of the things I think that has been so damaging to the church these last couple of years has been the fact that the pandemic caused us to just be physically separated from each other. And that physical separation created stressors and division and just isolation that I don't think any of us could have really predicted or understood until we went through it. 
Now we try to work through it in lots of different ways, right? So suddenly you may have noticed our online stream got a whole lot nicer looking. You know, we tried to compensate for that. And we added a chat room that, you know, a few people used for a while. And then for our small groups, we started doing, you know, online groups. And, and then to try to have connection with each other and relationship, we'd do like game nights online. So, you know, myself and some other families, we would all, you know, be locked in our, room, our homes, obviously, would have two screens up. And one screen has everybody's videos on it. And the other screen has a, a board game on it over here and so we could still play board games with each other and hang out you know and somehow the same people always won online that did in person and every now and then you'd see a an argument start you know in one household and suddenly the video would go black but other than that it was a, a really really it was not a great experience because as soon as we were able to we're like we're getting back together again we want to be now I know there were some people during the pandemic that were like this is my jam man if social distancing could stick around forever, I like this whole waiting in line and that person's five feet in front of me and five feet back there. I like my personal space. Some of your bubbles grew like three times larger and you loved it. But isn't it true, especially for those of you that are here in the room right now, that once you started coming back to be with a fellowship of believers again, there's just something different about it. Amen. There's something different about being together and forming those relationships. And I know that there are probably people in this room right now who you look around, you don't know many other people in this room. And my encouragement to you is start some koinonia. Be devoted to the fellowship. Reach out to some other people who are around you after this service and just say, hey, can we get together? Can we, can we do something? I don't, I don't know anybody else around here. You need that encouragement. You need that fellowship. And we need to be devoted to it. It might be inconvenient and it might be awkward. And for some of us, if we're introverts, it might be really scary. But they were devoted to it. We need to be devoted to the community, to the fellowship, to the relationship, to the koinonia. I'm not going to harp on this a lot, and I don't want this to be at all a shame-based message. I'm not trying to say to anybody that's not in the room right now, you know, that you're somehow a lesser class Christian. I'm so thankful for our online ministry. I'm thankful that if you're sick, that if, if you're traveling, um, that if you're, you're just checking out the church for the first time, you have the option to get online and watch the service. I think that is awesome. And the truth is the lobby has moved online today. I mean, everybody checks out the church online before they come to the church in person. So I, I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Um, but the reality is, it's just not the same through a screen. And a lot of churches are starting to go all in on online ministry and virtual ministry and saying, you know, we're going to do the virtual church and you can just meet online and you can have your small group online. You can do all this stuff online. And I guess I, I've, I've gone back and forth on it, trying to figure out what I think about it. And at the end of the day, I just think, man, isn't what we have to offer that in-person connection with people who you may not agree on everything. You may not agree on a lot of things. We can agree on the gospel of Jesus and we can be united and with each other and have great relationships and, and love and support for each other around that. And that happens best in person. So Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Here's what I want you to notice about this. The problem of churches deciding that they weren't going to get together as regularly had already started by the time the author of Hebrews wrote this. Because he says, hey, some churches are already in the habit of this. They're not getting together regularly. But let's not be like that. If we're going to be devoted to the fellowship with one another, then we have to make it a priority. And I know the easy thing is to say, but I've got 
this game today, but I've got this other thing over here. And all that's really saying about us is that the, the fellowship with other believers isn't a priority to us. I know stuff comes up. I'm not trying to say you need to be in church every time the doors are open. Um, if you were to do that here, you'd have to literally be here every day from like 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. because there's always stuff going on. The doors are open a lot. But what I'm saying is, shouldn't the fellowship with other believers be a priority to us? And so many other things are taking first place. I don't want to spend too much more time on that. Again, I'm not trying to shame anybody here, but we need to be devoted to the fellowship with other believers. Let's talk about the next one, number three. This is my favorite of the whole list. They were devoted to eating together. Isn't that awesome? For some of you, it's like, that's my life verse right there. Devoted to eating together, yes. Technically, what it says is breaking bread. They were devoted to breaking bread. And later on, breaking bread would become a term that was used for the Lord's Supper. And so some people have read into this that it was just the Lord's Supper they're talking about. But the reality is, breaking of bread was a phrase that was used for the Jewish meal. It's what they did. It's how they started their meal. So every time you have a Jewish meal, they would sit down, and they, whether it was a family or multiple families together, and they would break the bread, and they would pass it around. So breaking of bread was a phrase used just for having a meal together. It probably also meant, because this is what they did, it probably also meant the Lord's Supper. And so they would have a meal, and they would have the Lord's Supper as a part of that, just like Jesus did. We've gotten away from that over the centuries. And I'm not saying this is good or bad, but now we tend to do the Lord's Supper as part of the weekend gathering right here, and we're going to do that today in a little bit. Uh, back in the early church days, they actually did this in their homes. So in Jerusalem, for instance, the first church that kind of grew and, and got big, in Jerusalem, they would meet regularly at the temple steps to worship God as a big group. It was a large area that they could all meet together. And then throughout the week, they would meet in their homes. And that's where they actually had meals together and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. The great thing about eating food together is that it's a phenomenal equalizer. It doesn't matter whether you're old or young, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, everybody needs to eat. And, and when you're eating there and you're sitting across the table from each other and you're shoving food in your mouth, it's just this incredible equalizer that says, hey, this is something we could all do together. And I tell you, for guys especially, it's hard for us to just sit down and talk, isn't it? Like, how's your life? What's going on? What are your big struggles right now? It's like, unless you're a pastor, that's not a natural question to ask. But when we're doing something with our hands, when we're eating something, it's so much easier for us to get into good conversations with each other. And I just think it's so incredible that Luke chose four things to share with us that the early church was devoted to. Through great difficulty, through great inconvenience, they were going to do these four things. And of all the dozens of things he could have picked from, he had four slots to work with. And of the dozens of things that Jesus taught and the apostles taught, the thing that he put in there that they were devoted to was eating together. I think that says something. You know, God gave us food for nourishment. He gave us a need for food. We can't live without it. He gave us all this incredible variety in fruit, food and, and incredible diversity of what we can eat. And it's interesting and it's fun and sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's really gross, but there's this whole spectrum out there. And I think there is something to getting together and eating together with other people in the body of Christ. And there's almost this lost art of hospitality that I think they understood way better back in Bible times than we do today. And I guess maybe the outcome for some of you is just you need to approach somebody else in church and say, can we get a meal together? If, you, if you're not doing that regularly, man, that is, a, that is a powerful thing to do to get to know other people and have a stronger relationship in the body of Christ. Just grab a meal together. One of the best things we do in our small group, every time, I'm not saying every small group has to do this, they don't all do this, but in our small group, we always share a meal together before we before we meet, we'll do it tonight. 
And it's just a great time to talk and catch up and, and it builds those bonds together. So they were devoted to eating together and practicing the Lord's Supper. There's one more thing they were devoted to, and that is prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Prayer is this amazing thing, isn't it? Because we can treat it so flippantly at times, but it's a direct connection to the creator of the universe and your savior. Just pause and think about that for a minute. That's what prayer is. If you believe this, it is a connection to God. And why do we treat it so flippantly? It's like you've got the red phone that you can just pick up and direct out God anytime. You don't have a, a phone number that you can call to get to the president of the United States. And I would bet that no one listening to this message has the phone number, cell phone number of some big name celebrity that they could just call up and say, you know, I didn't really like that tweet that you said, or I wanted you to do something differently. You can't do that. But you can contact the God of the universe anytime you want. That's amazing. And they were devoted to it. Now we know from Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching, Jesus said, hey, don't do big showy prayers. Better off for you to go in a closet and pray by yourself. So there's individual prayer. And then we also know that the church prayed together. And I will tell you one thing I am so thankful for at this church is we are a praying church. We really are. Um, it's amazing to see that prayer list come out and you can always add something to it at efree.org slash prayer. Add a prayer request. I get those. Lots of people get those. And we pray about those things. We pray all the time around here. We not only pray, obviously spend time in prayer in our services here. Sometimes we'll dedicate a whole Sunday to be a prayer Sunday. And then we have prayer in our groups all the time. We pray to start our meetings and, and the pastors will sit down and pray over all the staff of the church. And, and we pray for our ministry leaders. And we just, prayer is just baked into what we do here. We've got a prayer wall out in the lobby that you can go write a prayer request on. And if you wanna, wanna bring yourself to tears, go read some of the prayer requests that are out there and, and, and just pray over what's happening in your church family. We need to be a people that's devoted to prayer because we have this direct connection to our heavenly father. And so often we just take it for granted through great difficulty, through inconvenience, through pain, whatever it takes, we need to be a people devoted to prayer. The early church gives us this amazing example, four things that they were all about. Four things that I think help answer the question of why is the church important? The teaching in the church the fellowship with other believers in the church, eating meals and practicing the Lord's Supper together and praying both individually and together. Those four things, if we will be devoted to them, honestly, I think that is how God grows his church. There's all sorts of other things we can do, but if we will just get back to those core things and live those out and be devoted to them in our life, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday and people see that change in us, they're gonna go, man, there's something to this. This is a different way to live. And it looks like there is freedom and joy and healing and wholeness in this if we'll focus on the things that really matter. Can I pray for you? Would you just bow your heads with me and we're gonna get ready to practice the Lord's Supper together. But before we do that, let's just pause and take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you for giving us the church. And we know that the church is not the building. The church is the people who are gathered together and who regularly gather together to make sure that we're listening to the teaching that's been passed down to us, to make sure that we're in fellowship together and have close relationship with each other, to make sure that we are praying and eating together, Lord, that we continue to have these close bonds with each other, united even though there may be things that we disagree about. It's one of the beautiful things about your church. God, I pray that you would help us to have that mindset of devotion 
when it comes to your church, Jesus, that you are building. That this would not just be a casual thing for us, an occasional thing for us, but God, that you would help us to have a passion for it. That on Sunday morning, when we're thinking about whether or not to gather with the other believers, that we would remember, hey, devotion, devoted, I'm gonna be there. Even if it's tough, even if I don't feel like it today, I'm gonna be there because it matters. Your church is so incredibly important, not because of who we are, but because it's yours. You own it, you are building it. Help us to remember that, God. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. Thank you that you died and shed your blood and your body was broken so that we can be free. And just because we're free from sin doesn't mean we're free from all the problems of life. We still experience those, but we know that you are there to walk with us every step of the way. And Jesus, now we remember the sacrifice that you made for us. And and God, may this not just be a, a, a ritual for us. May this not just be something that we do out of tradition, but may this be something that is a part of devotion where we remember on a deep level the, what you did for us and the difference that that makes in our life today, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we're gonna pass out these elements to you and you will take a, a stack of cups if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just let it pass you by and that's fine. But if you are, you'll take a stack of cups and the bottom cup is the bread, the top cup is some grape juice and that represents the blood and the body of Jesus. I'm gonna read some scripture in a moment that's gonna pull all of that together a little bit more. Um, but I wanna let you know that if you, if you need a gluten-free wafer, it's available in the middle of the tray. And I also want you in the next few minutes as we pass these out to just be reflecting on the message that you just heard, the teaching that you just heard. Is there some way in which God is touching your heart and saying, I want you to pay attention to this part right here. There's this aspect of your life that I want you to surrender me. There's this thing that's taken priority over me or over my church. And I don't mean my church, I mean his church. As if God is speaking to you, maybe he is. What's taking priority in your life over devotion to his church? Take a moment, pray, reflect, and we'll come back together to take the elements in just a minute. The cups that you have in front of you contain elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. And the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just for that day that we believe it and we become a part of God's family, but it's for every single day to remember what's really important in our life. And let that be something that that affects our perspective of everything that goes on around us. Whatever happens this week, don't forget what Jesus did for you and how that should change your life. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians. He said, and we're gonna take the bread now. He said, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me.